Hey, it's Jim Paff again, and this is the Against Nice podcast, where we believe that nice people are evil because they want to run your lives. We promote culture and government that values voluntary decisions left up to you. This is a way to promote justice and kindness that thinks about the needs of others before ourselves. Go to our website, politicsisntnice.com, and join our email list. The button's right there at the top right, politicsisntnice.com. Well, everyone, this is our very first podcast on the Against Nice podcast. And I'm sure many of you are sitting around saying, okay, so what do you mean by against nice? It seems a little odd. Why would anyone be against nice? Uh, In niceness, you know, what we aspire to? Don't we want people to be nice? Well, you know, in a common sense, yes. But I think we haven't defined the term well enough. And that's what we're doing on this podcast, not just from time to time offering a definition, but trying to get the best people on who can help us understand how various problems in our culture and our government are playing out. And the way that politicians and people in Hollywood and people in government in general, the way that they uh, advance these horrible ideas they have, the way that they advance their desire to tell you what you ought to do, the way that they think about the effect of what they'll do, and to be candid, the corruption that exists where they take in for themselves at your expense, all of this is done under this cover of niceness. I think the Clintons epitomize this. Yes, many of us definitely knew that they were fake and false in their behind-the-scenes activities. But you have to understand, in 1992, when Bill Clinton emerged upon the scene, the depth of corruption behind he and his wife Hillary was so severe, was so deep, was so rancid at its core, and no one saw it. I I believe sincerely if the American people had known uh, and, and or if it had been processed for them properly, what Bill and Hillary Clinton really were, they would never have had anything to do with them. Now, as it is, much of it was exposed, but at that time, we didn't have the internet wasn't a place that people got information. They only got their information from the major news networks and uh, in a limited way from cable TV, and only at that time really CNN, Fox News. And other alternative outlets had not come on the scene, not even MSNBC. It was just CNN. All the major networks and broadcast cable news were dedicated to talking at the top line and often were hiding what was really going on. This was the great thing about the advent of uh, Rush Limbaugh and the radio talk show hosts that followed after him. And the end, uh, if you'll recall, of the um, Fairness Doctrine, which required any broadcast 
news and any broadcast radio or television to provide both sides of the issue. The reality was both sides of the issue were never being shared. Only one side of the issue, one perspective was being shared. So Bill and Hillary Clinton, in the majority of their contacts with other people, were able to put a nice face on what it was that they wanted to do and who they were. And when scandals came out, like the major 60 Minutes interview, when, as uh, James Carville called it, the bimbo eruptions started coming about, when you found out how much sleeping around that uh, Bill Clinton was doing and some allegations even of rape, well, they were able to talk about it, and then Hillary was able to come there and be the dutiful wife and stand up for him and make it look like it wasn't what it was. See, that putting up that patina of nice doesn't mean you won't have accusations come up against you. It's just you frame it in a way to make yourself look much better than you really are. By the way, it, it, in a sense, it's human nature, but there are some people who are so corrupt in this effort, and of those people, many of them get power in government and in culture, maybe in Hollywood and other places, that it's hard to understand uh, what's really going on beneath the surface. This is a, even a much worse problem, for example, in Hollywood, back in the golden age of Hollywood. You never heard about, or didn't often hear, about the personal foibles of many of those actors. And I'm not dissing the golden age of Hollywood. I think, I think it was great. But we had a time in our culture for a long period of time where uh, reporters didn't dig in too, too deeply into the personal lives of public figures. And in a sense, that was appropriate. But as we got into the late 70s and all the way through into the 90s and even to today, people started to figure out how they could play the media to hide serious issues that should have affected people's opinions. So that's kind of a, a little bit of a background so what, what is niceness? I, I maintain that nice people, especially in this day and age, tend to be the most evil, corrupt people in the world. And when you first hear that, you're telling yourself, well, why, why would you say that about nice people? Well, it, it really goes to the core of the definition of niceness. So when something is nice... The dictionary says it's something pleasing or desirable. And niceness is a very subjective criteria. What that means is that it's it's really based upon your opinion, what you think is nice. And let's be honest, that's it's that way for all of us. It's not just that way, you know, for some. And there's, there's nothing wrong with the subjectivity of the term nice. The problem is when people start to gain influence, whether it's a family member all the way up to people in government and in culture and society, they, once they get some amount of power over you, they begin to try to impose their ideal upon you. So right now, for example... When we went through the financial crisis, it wasn't nice in people's minds that credit card companies charged high interest rates. 
And no one thinks that's good. But here's the problem. To fix that, they uh, created the CFPB that is not accountable to Congress or to the president because the person appointed to it who has authority over a mass of financial transactions around the country, uh, that person gets to decide how all that business is going to go. So therefore, uh, now, uh, financial institutions, not just related to credit cards, but all over. Of course, we, we had the mortgage crisis that was connected to that. All of these financial transactions, and a truly unaccountable bureaucrat who runs the CFPB gets to make decisions about every financial transaction, nearly every financial transaction that takes place in this country. And that's someone's idea of what ought to happen, that they impose upon business, and the economic impact is that people get thrown under the bus or they their options are reduced. Or liquidity, you know, people's ability to get to borrow money for their entrepreneurial efforts gets messed up or you can't buy the kind of house that you want or if you do it's such a burden that you may give up on it because there truly were some people taking advantage in these credit card transactions but because some person wanted to go after those and be able to have the power to impose those same standards on everyone else even good actors in the financial markets now we all uh, have a problem with that. I don't. I don't know if you know this, but uh, this happens. This this shows itself up in uh, in rural communities. Like uh, my, my back part of my background is having worked on Capitol Hill as a chief of staff for a couple of different congressmen, Tim Hillscamp and Thomas Massey. And I worked for Tim, and he represented the western two thirds of Kansas. Farmers and other people in that area who were just trying to make a living couldn't buy houses in an area where houses were $100,000, sometimes less, sometimes only barely more. And we would talk to the small banks in that community, and they couldn't make loans on homes for $100,000. No one could get a mortgage on those because it was far too expensive because of the regulations that the CFPB put upon them. This is what nice people do. They destroy things. They turn what can be good into something bad. Nice people don't trust you to make decisions on your own. So if even if someone decides to make a bad financial decision, some bureaucrat in Washington, D.C., under the guise of trying to stop it, also destroys an entire industry. I guarantee you that many of those people that are trying to get mortgages in rural Kansas over the last 10 years since the financial crisis have have really suffered when they needed a better place to stay. So they were forced to rent something that was much less comfortable, potentially not desirable location. They couldn't choose the location they wanted to go to. All these choices were taken away from them because of what nice people wanted to do. This is why I say nice people are the most evil people in the world. Take a look at the Environmental Protection Agency. There was uh, recently a Waters of the U.S. Uh, proposal that came through the Obama administration, supposedly under the guise of protecting the environment. The problem is they could literally um, 
they, they could literally regulate you, put you under federal regulation for having a small pond in your backyard. It, it, it literally could have gone down to mud puddles in certain areas would bring the federal government in to choose what you could do with your property, taking away your property rights, taking away your ability to use your property in a way that most benefited you. This is what nice people do. Um, and by the way, who are these nice people? You look at what the so-called deep state in Washington, D.C., these are all nice people. I mean, you look at the people that came up to the impeachment hearings recently. They're pleading to have the ability to maintain their expertise over an elected president of the United States because in their mind, there was some important purpose for them to be able to control his behavior. Now, again, in their minds, it seems totally reasonable, except that we have institutions in this country that are run by people we elect, and it's their responsibility to take care of that. We have the ability to kick them out, ostensibly, if we want to, at the polls. So they must make their decisions with a view to what our needs are, with a restraint placed upon them by the Constitution. So I get that background to ask this question, what's the real outcome of promoting niceness? It's the taking away of freedom. The taking away, the basic economic principle is this, voluntary exchange between people is the most efficient way for us to be able to live our lives because we get to choose the boundaries of our activities. We get to choose the outcome of those activities. You know, when you have real freedom, then you get to take reap all the benefits of the good decisions you make, and you're responsible fully for all the personal the the, uh, the poor decisions that you make on the other side when someone can succeed at the highest level because they're not restrained by government ninnies then that's good for them that's the that's what we call the american dream by the way it's not greed it's it's the american dream but they'll tend to make better decisions because if they know that the downside's really bad then they're going to be cautious about making poor decisions. They're going to learn wisdom. They're going to gain experience. And when that interaction takes place at the individual level, at the small business level, at the corporate level, then we get good outcomes in the long run. Some people will fail. Some will succeed. You've heard the basic uh, statement that... uh, that every successful person has failed dozens of times. It's true. But that when that process is taken away, the success they could have had could never have been achieved unless they were responsible for bad decisions and could reap the benefits of good ones. So I, I, there's a great quote by uh, C.S. Lewis, which I often turn to. He it's, it's a brilliant statement of the problem that I'm trying to describe. Here's what he says. In a sort of ghastly simplicity... Oh, sorry, I went to the wrong one there. Uh, here it is. Um, of all tyrannies, 
a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It would be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated. But those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. That right there is the definition of nice people. They're omnipotent moral busybodies. Now, there's a different way to approach this. So what I'm not saying that now we need to all be cruel and selfish and going after other people. There is a better way, and it's called kindness. Let's talk about kindness. See, we sometimes equate the word nice with kind, and they're actually totally different. Kindness is not a subjective action. See, niceness is subjective because it's a motivation from some personal person's personal moral judgment or personal judgment of what ought to happen in society because of what pleases them. Whereas a kind person doesn't take what pleases them as the initial uh, thought in their mind. A kind person actually thinks of the benefit of others first before their own benefit. Now, it's not mutually exclusive for you to seek you know, your own self-interest when you're trying to build your business, grow your career, get your education, whatever pursuit you're taking on. It's not like you throw that off to the side. It's that when, you're in, when you end up interacting with other people, you think of their needs and not just your own. That's kindness. But let's dig a little bit deeper here. See, no one would consider, and, and anyone that does is a cruel person, no one would consider a parent, a very kind parent, who didn't discipline their children. And no child being disciplined thinks it's very nice what their parents are doing. But that whole exchange there produces two good results. In the short run, it brings a greater level of, of self-government to the child who must learn, even in a difficult past with their parents, uh, some a better way of doing things. And, and the child in the long run, even though they hate the discipline at the time it's happening, when they grow and gain better wisdom, are able to gain excellent perspective about that interaction that took place. And that gives them wisdom for the future. It allows them to go out from their house and to succeed. The, the other thing that we would think it was cruel for parents to do is if they didn't have a desire and a passion to, um, to, to, to exemplify good behavior in front of their kids. That also is a kindness, but it's a selfless effort. In other words, kindness puts responsibility on the person seeking to be kind. They don't get their own way all the time in every instance. They actually 
cast out their thoughts towards others. I used to tell my two young boys, I'd draw a circle over the top of my head, a, kind of a, 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 uh, an imaginary circle over my head, when I would tell them that they're, they were in a selfish mode. And I would tell them, you got to think outside that circle because what's happening in that circle is not everything that's going on here. That's, that's what we do in this parental exchange when we're raising kids and trying to help them be better. That is a kind effort when we expose the selfishness and the subjective way of thinking that every kid naturally does because they're still learning. So that's a good kind of example of kindness. Um, are nice people kind? Well, more times not than they are. And no one's perfectly evil. I call nice people evil. No one's perfectly evil. No one's entirely evil. But this tendency to thinking inside of oneself and giving no consideration for anyone else is corrosive in society. You know, uh, really interesting, uh, the, the epitome of this problem was uh, exemplified in the book Lord of the Flies. You might recall in that book that uh, 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 some young British kids were marooned on an island, a shipwreck, and just the kids survived. And they ended up harping and beating up on each other and even killing a couple of the kids as the whole thing played out. There was actually that that that's that's an example of niceness because it for even though it, they developed their pecking order and everyone in the pecking order had an idea of what everyone else ought to do. But interestingly there was a real life version of Lord of the Flies that took place back in the 1960s. And there were some kids who went out on a fishing boat one day. They actually stole the boat and went off on their own and got caught up in a storm. It was a nice day, and they were going to go fishing, but a storm showed up. This is down in, in Australia, actually, in the area of Tasmania. And they were marooned on this island for 15 months, and there was a ship captain that found them and uh, rescued them. And they told the story, and what ended up happening was this particular group of kids got together and thought about how they could take care of one another. They all pursued what they needed to pursue individually, but they, they also thought about one another. They set up a system of uh, helping one another with certain tasks. And there was even one of the kids who broke his leg and was laid up for a while. And the tasks that he was supposed to do, everyone else decided to help him out with those tasks. Whenever you help someone else out, whenever you do something for someone else, you must give up something that is important to you. And so they survived wonderfully. Uh, they had uh, gotten to the point where they could sustain themselves with their own food. They had planted a garden. They were collecting water because, you know, this wasn't a large island. It was a very small island, so it didn't keep a lot of water. They had set up these systems, worked together, shared together. It is possible for mankind to help one another. So, there, there is a way that we can do this in societies that think this way, that think that everyone's voluntary decisions 
are up to them and they don't need to change those decisions, but they may help one another figure out how to make better decisions. As with the parent, you know, you would, the, the parent tries to help the child learn how to do things better. And in society, it doesn't mean you don't take any time to correct someone or tell them they might be wrong, but you leave the decision to them. So let me get back into government here because the question is, is government nice? Well, the way that government runs in this society, uh, they are always trying to put up a nice face. I remember as a kid, there was a time that you could uh, say, hey, to say to some government official, hey, I'm a taxpayer. What are you doing? And that would have been taken seriously. There was a time in this country, I mean, we, we've had government problems throughout our history. We've had big government swings and less government swings. But still, there was a time, even in all of that, where people honored someone for paying taxes. There's no honor for taxpayers in this day and age. But the way that government can work to uh, still have this disrespect of you and yet not anger the electorate so much that they get changed around is because they make it seem nice. It's for the children. We're giving you a welfare check. Uh, in the COVID-19 situation, you you got people talking about giving you know a basic income to everyone. We're throwing out trillions of dollars. It's to help. And in the COVID-19 example, the problem happened in our economy because the government shut everything down. They didn't trust people to have good information and make decisions on their own that would benefit them and keep them safe. See, I'm convinced that the best way to deal with the pandemic, which, by the way, we had done in our entire history with very little exceptions prior to the COVID-19 thing, take the Hong Kong flu in 1968. That flu hit our country. 200 million population, 100,000 people died. It was a worse epidemic than what we have now. But you did not have this massive effort to shut down the government and tell people what they could and couldn't do. That did not happen in 1968. People, though, made their own decision. By the way, the Woodstock took place right in the middle of the Hong Kong flu pandemic. We, the government doesn't trust us to make our own decisions. A couple of quotes that I think are interesting. And I was influenced very early on by Henry Hazlitt. He was an economist. Uh, he, he wrote the book Economics in One Lesson, which I, I recommend everyone read. It was an early exposure for me as a very young man uh, to economic principles. Here's something that he said. He said, the government has nothing to give anybody that it doesn't first take from someone else. I mean, keep that in mind. When you looked at the COVID-19 thing, there was that $2.3 trillion bill early on. Uh, What did people do? What did the government do? Well, in effect, we passed a $2.3 trillion bill where we took $2.3 trillion out of the economy. We put it into the hands of politicians who decided how to put that $2.3 trillion back into the economy. 
you know, there's a you'll see memes out on the internet, uh, out on Facebook or whatever social media sometimes that say taxation is theft, and that seems to throw people off. They don't know how to handle that. Well, in reality, it is theft. In other words, now, now it could be voluntary theft. We decide that there's some government we want to do, and it needs to be paid for, so we voluntarily decide to allow that to happen. But why is it important to call taxation theft? Well, because it's your money. Government has no money that wasn't first yours. Right now, the average American works all the way through April to pay all of their taxes. I mean, you, you don't even make money for yourself until you get to the end of April in many cases. Some people worse. Some people maybe slightly less, but very rarely. But um, it, that, that's the, you know, they're taking of your wealth, of your effort. The money you make, the income you bring in represents your labor, your ingenuity, however much or little of it you have, depending on where you're at in, in that stage of life and the stage of your, uh, your, your working career. They're taking from your labor, your efforts to uh, do these things that government does. And we think that government's being so charitable to us. Folks, government's not nice. I mean, it is nice. It's not kind. Government has its own efforts primarily in mind, not yours. The only time that government has you in mind is if the sum total of people in that government personally give account to you. And that's why I talked about this uh, thing of, you know, you could call yourself a taxpayer. And, and a government official would say, oh, wow, wow, I got to pay attention to that. And they'd take it seriously. That attitude doesn't exist, exist largely in government anymore. Uh, another uh, great quote uh, that deals with the politics of government, H.L. Um, Mencken, uh, columnist, uh, writer, reporter from back in the early part of the 20th century, said the whole aim of practical politics is to keep the populace alarmed and hence clamorous to be led to safety by menacing it with an endless series of hobgoblins, all of them imaginary. The, the way that nice people in government keep you occupied with their power and how important they are is to constantly inject fear. And they do it in a myriad of ways. You know, the, the, the whole a pandemic is is fearful enough all by itself. You don't need politicians injecting fear into that. But what about an overuse of the military? I wasn't fear injected into us that led us into an Iraq war that wasted lives and money over years under a pretense that ended up being false. We had an authorized use of military force in the federal government that began in 2001 that continues to this day. This is here in 2020. I mean, it's, it's an outrage. That's injecting of fear. The fear that someone might go hungry, so therefore we must have this expansive government program. When I worked for Tim Hill's camp in Congress, we were talking about the SNAP program. This is the uh, Supplemental Nutrition Program, basically the food stamp program. 
And we argued at the time, since that program was bloating more and more and more, that uh, able-bodied people who didn't have any dependents should be required to take certain steps before they could continue uh, continue receiving those SNAP payments. Well, you'd have thought that we were trying to kill people and kill babies. No, we said able-bodied people that don't have dependents, that they should have to be taking steps to try to get a job, to try to do other things. You know, we were talking about able-bodied people, not people that are indigent or or uh, disabled in some way that makes it harder to find a job. Just that small group of people, able-bodied people with dependents, we weren't going to take those out. But no, they inject fear into it, like you're trying to destroy people's lives. They, they literally lied because we had already known that during the Clinton administration, that welfare reform that was passed by Congress actually got people off the welfare rolls, got people into a job. But no, they inject fear. The fear that if we lose this program, if you go look at your city government or your local county government, when they're at risk of losing money in their budget, what do they say? Well, we the police and the fire won't get, the schools won't get money. You know what? Those are, those are big parts of local budgets, but they're not all of it. And they always throw the threat that's going to cause you to get the greatest emotional response so that they can continue to do the things that they want to do. Government is about perpetuating itself. What was it that Ronald Reagan said? That there's nothing in this world that comes closer to eternal life than a government program? Look at the Constitution. See, all these nice people who put fear in you in government to make you pay for them to do certain things, they don't look at the Constitution. I, I don't. I wouldn't know the exact number. I've never. I haven't done the study. But when you look at numbers of programs, there is easily sixty percent of the federal budget that is absolutely unconstitutional. That that if you read the constitutional Article One, Section Eight, and the enumerated powers, meaning this is the number of things that gov- that federal government could do and no more. Uh. 60% of the federal budget doesn't fit any of those categories. I mean, we we talk about the post office losing so much money and uh, and people scream about giving it more from the federal government. Well, at least when they're wasting that money uh, for a program that's not making money, the, the United States Postal Service, at least that is well laid out in the Constitution. Now, we don't have to do it, but it is something that... Congress was allowed to do. It's listed there in the Constitution. But I I can tell you this, the Environmental Protection Agency is not listed in the Constitution. The Department of Education in the federal government is not listed in the Constitution. The United States Department of Agriculture is not even listed in, in the Constitution. You know, here's the fear that if we don't have a USDA, that your food's going to go bad. Where did that come from? Well, that come from the yellow journalists in the early part of the 20th century. Upton Sinclair writes a story about uh, a meat plant and a man falls into the meat grinder and dies and, gets, and they don't want to say anything about it. That's the kind of stuff 
that uh, brought about the types of regulations in the USDA that we see today was a yellow journalist writing a false story and making it seem like that was the standard. Everybody did that, and we got to avoid that. Now, we, we can argue. I mean, you can pass a constitutional amendment to do these things if you want to do it out of the government. But the only way that most of these government programs can continue on the way they do is by a politician or a government official injecting fear in you, fear of loss, fear of what will happen if we don't do this. They never talk about all the excesses of government programs, the failures of government programs. These aren't talked about. But these people who keep injecting this fear, they're so nice. They're thinking of you. They're thinking of the children. This is why I say that nice people tend to be the most evil, cruel people in the world because they want to hold on to something in themselves. Power, money, sometimes sex, or some other immoral behavior. Corruption. These are the things that are in the heart of nice government people. And then as bombastic and strange and odd as he can be when Donald Trump comes in and calls out some of these problems, which he hasn't done entirely. I'm not saying he's perfect. I'm not saying I agree with every one of his policies. But he's the first guy to really do it. What do they do? They, they put the full force of the federal government against him in a lying impeachment effort to try to destroy the man and to push him out of Washington, to try to kick him out from being duly elected by the people of this country. Whether you like it or not, the man was elected. When you read about the Michael Flynn revelations that have recently happened, and you find out that people in the FBI were lying to the FISA court, they were lying to the American public, they were sending information to news outlets who would lie to the American public about what was going on. When Representative Adam Schiff of California said he had substantial evidence that he couldn't yet release because it was classified that proved that Donald Trump was working with the Russians and the entire Mueller report shows that didn't happen at all. And then the Michael Flynn, the papers that got released in the Michael Flynn case proved that these people were conspiring to hopefully get Michael Lynn fired or, or to get him uh, uh, shown as a liar and go to federal court. These people are corrupt to the core. But when you hear James Comey go out there and talk in such breathless terms about how uh, horrible Donald Trump is and how wonderful what he's doing in the FBI is, and they are liars. Those are nice people. They will argue the lie for their benefit to maintain their power. And by the way, in James Comey's case, just a revolving door. They go in uh, to the government, don't make you know a whole, it's not horrible income, but don't make a whole lot of money, then they go right back out of government, make millions of dollars, then they go back in government, and there, it's, it's a revolving door. You look at what happens with the Federal Reserve and with the Treasury Department. People from some uh, highfalutin Wall Street firm, Goldman Sachs or whatever, they go make buku money at Goldman Sachs, and they come into the Treasury Department and the SEC and the and the Federal Reserve, all of which either regulate or provide uh, financial assistance 
to these organizations, to, to these uh, uh, Wall Street firms. And they don't make much money in the government, then they come back out and make a whole bunch of money. This is a vicious, corrupt cycle that has got to stop. It's nice people who perpetuate this cycle. If they were kind people, they'd actually think about you. They'd actually care about things that matter to you. They'd care that every bit of money that's coming out of the government comes out of your pocket and goes into theirs. They'd be concerned about that. And they're not, by and large. And then when people like my former boss, Thomas Massey, demands that Congress come back to vote on this massive $2.3 trillion coronavirus bill, you get the whole weight of Congress and the federal government and media going after him. But then because he took the courage to do that, because he thought of you first and he didn't think of himself, because he's not doing anything that'll set him up to make a lot of money when he goes out of Congress, <laughs> then people start figuring out what's going on and they've been supporting him more and more and they'll likely do so moving forward. This is the problem that we have with the government. There's another basic problem that we have. We don't have a good understanding of anthropology. And you're at, well, anthropology, what's that? Well, it's the study of mankind, culturally, societally, all these different things. We, but, but the nature of man in general, we don't understand the basic fact that left to his own devices, we still have something of, an, of a moral, well, a massive moral problem in our hearts that requires discipline to reduce the effect of. We don't understand or give enough thought to the fact that when bureaucrats are hired in Washington, D.C., that they are human beings, and if given without sufficient safeguards, without sufficient responsibility being placed upon them for the actions that they take, that they'll tend to make the bad actions because and you're saying now wait a minute jim when you you just talked about voluntary uh decision making you talked about uh you know self-directed decision making you know seeking your self-interest that that's good for society well it is but when a bureaucrat's making a decision that is not something that is uh uh, that, that, that fits that same paradigm because they make a decision out of power. They have authority over others. When you're making a decision for yourself, you are responsible for all the bad consequences of bad decisions that you make. Bureaucrats are not responsible for bad decisions. If they make a bad decision, oh, well. And it just keeps moving along. That's why we got so many regulations that are so useless. You ought to follow that Twitter uh, handle, Crime a Day. At crime a day, and look at all the stupid little crimes that are on the federal books that some bureaucrat uh, uh, promulgated after some stupid law was passed. Th- their self determination within that office is not helpful at all. But the other problem is a lot of bureaucrats, not all of them, but a lot of them. I spent a lot of years in D.C., far too many, in my opinion. But many of these bureaucrats, especially at upper levels, 
often leave their jobs in Washington, D.C. and make three, four, up to ten times the amount of money they made there because they can come back and influence those decisions, the decisions that are made in the federal government, that benefit the companies they go work for that pay them so much money because of their experience and connections. The only way to make government not act in this immoral manner where they take more and more of our money and they uh, put more and more rules upon us, the only way to break that cycle is to reduce government. If government's not important, the moral hazard goes away. We'll tend to lean towards so-called niceness when we have power and authority unless that power and authority is subject to something. So back to this idea of anthropology, when you don't have any natural restraints upon you, the one restraint that really matters is a restraint of an understanding of an eternal moral code that we cannot escape. If we know that we are responsible for ourselves if we don't know that we're created in the image of God and that we are required to be subject to him, that justice doesn't have its roots in what I think, but in eternal principles that cannot be shaken, then we have no restraints on us at all. Those restraints also require of us to act in kindness, which seeks the benefit of others which doesn't seek to control others, but does seek their benefit, that thinks of others before yourself. When you have a powerful government, that tendency can go away, and every one of us is subject to it. We must uh, deal with that. So, And it's something that's got to change. We need to understand what the nature of man is, and we'll talk about that from time to time on this podcast. Um, I, so I, I want to leave you with this idea of niceness. So, uh, you might, many of you might've seen the movie, the Incredibles. You might remember the scene early on in the movie when Mr. Incredible is working for an insurance company and you've got a, uh, he's got a manager who is constantly on his back because, Mr. Incredible helps people find and understand the rules on their policies so that they can get payment for their policies as needed. But uh, his boss is constantly trying to obfuscate for their insurance customers what the rules really are so they don't have to make payments. And this comes to a head, and Mr. Incredible walks in to his office. He's about to get fired. When he shuts the door, it moves the pencil on his boss's desk, and then he puts the pencil back in line. And he talks about, hey, what about, what about our shareholders? Who cares about the customers? What about our shareholders? And he's have to answer for doing the right thing. Nice people are Mr. Incredible's boss. Kind people are people like Mr. Incredible who are seeking the benefit of others. There's nothing in that exchange that showed he was trying to let someone get around a rule. He was just helping them find out what the rules were and to see uh, how they could get their, their payment to them. It's critical 
that we understand that it's natural to have corrupt behavior if we have no restraint upon ourselves. We will act in a corrupt nature. That nice people take the restraints off of themselves because they authorize themselves to demand of other people to fit into their own paradigm. Kind people seek to uh, to get the benefit for others. It's really, really crazy. And I take these principles, these ultimate principles, have their foundations in the Judeo-Christian ethic. In fact, we have no freedom in this world without the Judeo-Christian ethic that comes mostly through Western culture, some other cultures too, from time to time, as it's had limited influence. But we don't have the Constitution that we have without that ethic. We don't have that understanding of liberty because the Judeo-Christian ethic at its core sees value in the individual, has an anthropology that understands the value of those individuals as created in the image of God. I want to read this uh, quote and leave it with you from Jedediah Morse. He said, To the kindly influence of Christianity, we owe that degree of civil freedom and political and social happiness which mankind now enjoys. Whenever the pillars of Christianity shall be overthrown, our present republican forms of government and all blessings which flow from them must fall with them. And Christian principle takes its ethic from the Old and New Testament. Um, we think back even in other places in Western culture, back to Aristotle and Plato, who sought universal truth and an understanding of immutable principles that could not be changed. If we do not have these foundations, our society will be destroyed. That's why I'm doing this broadcast. That's why I bring the people on that I will bring on. And we're, you're going to talk to some of the top people in this country who are really making an effect, who have the clearest way of thinking about these issues. They're friends of mine, most of them, and I'm proud to have them. And I just want to share some of that wisdom with you as we move forward in this podcast. So that's the end for now. If you want to stay in touch, I ask you, go to our website, politicsisntnice.com, and click on the join our email list. You're going to get information through there, podcasts that are coming up, information that will be helpful to you. And we want to build this community around an understanding of what matters so that we can all be free, so that we can advance freedom in this country in a more significant way. Thank you for joining us today on the Against Nice podcast. And again, before you leave us, I just want to ask you, connect with us on our email list and our social media. Go to politicsisntnice.com. Click on the join our email list button. We'll get you information related to what we learned here today, but also um, other information that we're finding out along the way. It'll be a great resource for you. You can also go to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash against nice and our twitter page at against nice go check us out there and we look forward to talking to you getting your feedback finding out more from you thanks
Have a great day.